It was about philosophy of making sure each line was right, each line was beautiful. The car had a presence on the road, which made a statement. It's understanding that philosophy of a Jaguar. You need to know how much a car costs to develop these days. In today's money, it's anything up to half a billion pounds. We did that car for 30 million. Designers need to understand technology and technology packaging and challenge us, which is what we always did at Jaguar. We challenged everything to get the shape we wanted. The Chubb Interviews with Jody Kidd. Brought to you by Chubb Insurance. Expert insurers of your most valued possessions. Established since 1882. Hello and welcome back to the latest episode of the Chubb Interviews. I'm Jodie Kidd. I really hope that you've been keeping well and with spring just around the corner, here's hoping we'll soon have a chance to get outside a little bit more after these very long, wet winter months. Thank you so much for all your fantastic feedback after our last episode on 60 years of the E-Type. It was so lovely to hear how much you're enjoying each episode. In this series, we talk to fellow classic car lovers exploring the personal stories of people who inhabit this wonderful world. If you haven't had a chance to listen to all of the Chubb interviews, why not check out all of our episodes? We've had some fabulous conversations during the series. So my guest today is one of the UK's foremost car designers. It's the incredible Ian Callum CBE. Yes, listeners, another guest on the series who's received a gong at Buckingham Palace. Apart from working for the likes of Aston Martin, Ford and TWR, Ian is best known for his work at Jaguar, where he was director of design for 20 years. I'm sure he'll have some amazing stories to tell about his life at the top of this wonderful business. Before we speak to Ian, it's only fair that I allow this week's amazing co-host, journalist, broadcaster, Jason Barlow, to get a word in. Jace, how are you? Very well, thank you, Jody. All the better for hearing your fabulous voice. How are you? I'm very good. I mean, it's been a, a weird, tough year, but hopefully light at the end of the tunnel and we'll all get to see each other soon. It's funny, you know, I've been doing a big story for GQ with the Formula One team and I was just thinking about how Formula One managed to do what it did in 2020, get that season going, and we had three or four stunning races. So it's been a really difficult time, but I think a lot of people have demonstrated a lot of fortitude and imagination, not just in the, in the automotive industry, uh, just to keep going and keep the wheels turning. I'm just finishing off a book for Ferrari, uh, working with a wonderful Swedish creative director on a book dedicated to the Ferrari Monza SP12. My history of all the James Bond cars has come out as well, so that seems to be doing well, I think. That must have been a lot of fun researching. Uh, it was, yes. At, at times, you know, the key thing, I mean, it's, it's a really nicely designed book. I've got to give credit to one of my colleagues on Top Gear, Elliot, who's done a beautiful job of designing it. He and I were given access to the Eon archive, and you can imagine what that was like. 24 films plus the new one, No Time to Die, but an, an archive in London with all the images and all the material and a whole load of other stuff accrued around each Bond film. Um, but no one had gone through the photo archive specifically looking for the car angle. They had done it for various other angles over the years. And a lot of stuff had been digitized, but so much stuff. And I was like, what is this, you know? I feel very lucky and very blessed that my godfather is is a James Bond, George Lazenby. George Lazenby's your godfather? Yes. I did not know that. Yes, he is. Yeah. The thing is, obviously, George Lazenby, you know, f famously only did the one film. I had to, I watched all the films again. And Honor Majesty's Secret Service is in my top five Bond films. I, I think it's a tremendous film and he's he's brilliant in it. 
he's uh, it has just been voted the best bomb film i believe i'm not quite sure by which publication but but probably the george lazenby magazine but yeah no it's just been <laughs> it's just been voted number one it was a very good bond grateful well give, give george my best i shall i shall right that's enough of us it is time to say hello to our special guest. I'm very, very excited. It is the legendary Ian Callum. Hi, Ian. How are you? Hello. I'm fine. I'm fine. Legendary. That's overdoing it a little bit, I think. Oh, come on. You are. I've described you in the past as a national treasure. Probably an international treasure, actually. How does that feel? It feels a little bit over the top and I feel very humbled, but no, I don't think so. There are many people much more treasurable than I am. One of the places that employs me is British GQ. You are the reigning designer of the year for British GQ, and you said a very oh. sweet thing. Yeah, oh, round, of applause. round yeah. applause, round applause. Yeah, uh, richly deserved, uh, obviously, otherwise we wouldn't have given you the award, but you said something very sweet, actually, in the little acceptance speech, which was, it meant more to you because it was an award for you rather than the many awards that you garnered whilst heading up the design department at Jaguar. Did it mean more because it was partly a recognition of you moving on back out into the big bad world again? Yes, absolutely. You know, as you know, I've received a lot of awards on behalf of the team. And I had a great team, of course, and they were all friends. And I give them a lot of credit for so much that I've been recognised for. But this time, you know, with my name on the award itself, just felt very personal, especially after I received it after I left Jaguar. You know, it really was about me. I've got very few awards with my name in it. So, yeah, I do treasure it. And what surprised me was that once I left Jaguar, I thought, well, that's it, mate. You know, it's going to be feet up and lying on the beach, maybe, taking life in a very relaxed mode, but it certainly hasn't turned out that way. And I think this award was sort of a reflection of that, a recognition that I wasn't going to stop. And the great added value for me was it was saying to me, don't stop, keep going. That's something very special. So thank you. It's kind of like opening up a whole new chapter, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And the, and the last thing I want is a lifetime award. You know, that implies it's all over. Yeah. There's a running theme to this podcast series. So just before Christmas, I was talking to a little bit of an eye candy, a friend of all of ours, the gorgeous David Gandhi. Don't we love David? Oh, we do love David. He's such he, a charming man. He is, and a very good driver. And I was very, very lucky to share a seat with him in the Mila Milia, and we were talking about the Mila Milia, and of course, I've done it with you. I saw Jodie and her co-driver quite a lot, but it's usually the back of their head. You could never get past Jodie. <laughs> the funny thing is, you know, you start off, you start off thinking, I'm not bother about these things. And then you start to see people's scores, especially Jodie's, and you think, oh, I better try. And then once you start trying, you kind of get into it. And towards the end of the, the rally, day three or four, you're really into it. And then you start to score some good points. And then you think, I wish I'd done this at the beginning. So it's addictive, actually. I say the race, it's not a race, it's a rally. But my goodness, it is a race because when you're sitting in a D-type and you've got five gullwing Mercedes in front of you you have to get past them you have to because they didn't have any brakes so you could get past them in a Jaguar and you just outbreak them that was the most fun ever yeah if it wasn't dangerous which the last time I did it I can't remember if it was 2015 or not I was in the Curie Cost D-type second place and uh, that belonged to my good friend Clive Beecham and that was the best one I had done, actually, because we shared the driving 50-50. Because sitting in the passenger seat, it's hard work. The directions and everything, navigation is just such hard work. Yeah. So uh, it was exhausting. Amazing experience. And, and how lovely that we all did it together. I tell you what, the last time I saw you when we were doing the interview with the GQ thing, the Pro Dakar project, that must have been a lot of fun to design. 
that was a lot of fun to design because I was dealing with something that I'd never dealt with personally before, but also working with uh, Dave Richards and his ProDrive team. It's something that's new to them too. Yeah, they could build rally cars, good ones, but uh, this is a whole new, whole new game. So it was wide open in many ways. Of course, the rules that come in from the official bodies are actually quite strict. So they seem to be designed so it looks like a pickup truck for some reason. We managed to turn it into something that looks more like a, a sports car. So it was great fun. And we did the whole thing digitally. We didn't have time to go through the normal process, making models and having a look at it and making assessment of it. We literally did the whole thing digitally. And the first time I saw the car in real was when it was finished. Pretty expedient process. And we did it. Yeah, six to nine months, the whole thing. So it was quite an incredible feat on, on, on everybody's part. It's a big thing, by the way. When you see it in the flesh, it's enormous. You know, you think it's the size of a Mini, but it's not. It's actually real truck size. How difficult as a designer, and you know, you're so synonymous with doing incredible, beautiful lines and sports cars and to design something for the Paris Dakar, which is so foreign and especially, you know, doing all the dunes, doing, I mean, it is so different. I mean, I just wouldn't even know where to start. Well, the space frame was designed by ProDrive, so the setup was pretty well established and where the wheels and everything sat. But, you know, in terms of the aerodynamics and the bodywork, um, I've still got my curves in there, you know, they're still there. It's still got a sense of elegance. But with design, you have to work at it. It doesn't come in a flash. You have to work at it. And then when you get to a certain level, you realize when it's right, and then you kind of focus on it. So, and I suppose that is sort of inherently experience and a bit of intuitive feeling, but uh, you just go at it as if you've got anything else. It's just, at the end of the day, it's got to be right. That's agonizing. That's not just, uh, oh, something you wake up in the morning with a piece of inspiration you have to work at it and then something inside you tells you when it's right and usually it's wrong and you have to keep going you know yeah but ian can i ask you all that time i've known you to be a real adherent of of the clay model you know this is what happens in car design you guys will you know you'll you'll work up all the all the designs and then and then at, i don't know 18 months two years in you then do a full-size clay and then you work at it and you attack it and you rework it. What's it like skipping out that phase completely? I mean, how did you find it? Was it liberating? No, it wasn't liberating. It was focusing. You know, I just had to focus and make sure that what we released to the, the guys that are going to build it, uh, something that worked. To do that on a TV screen or a video screen is, is actually very, very difficult. So it wasn't liberating. It was challenging. But now that I've done it, I wouldn't do it to a supercar or something like that, that still needs to go through the process of beautification, as I call it, where everything has to be absolutely correct. You know, if you look at the surface of cars, people have no idea how long designers have worked on a clay model to get it absolutely right. In most cases, some cases, obviously they haven't. Can you look at a car design and go, they did that digitally, they never did the clay face, and that's why certain aspects of the surfacing are wrong? Yeah, you can tell, but in most cases, they do go through clay, and what actually upsets it really is just naivety. But uh, there's also, um, now I don't understand derogatory about it, but I do get frustrated with because every car on the road deserves to be nothing other than perfect. And when I see something which is not right, certainly in my eyes, of course I have an opinion, then I get frustrated because what happens with the clay model is people get seduced by it and, and suddenly in front of them they've got this opportunity to create surfaces that perhaps they hadn't even thought of. They kind of appear there and they go on and on and on. And you can see that a lot with this Baroque styling that's uh, very in, in fashion at the moment, where the clay model must have been a lot of fun to make, but the end result is not something which is such a joy long-term. 
it might look great in the showroom when there's lots of lights shining on it. But when you see it running down the road or the DRG, the down the road graphics, as we call it, it suddenly it doesn't hold out. And then five years later, you know, it really doesn't hold out. You know, it, it dates very quickly. So one of my objectives is to make sure that sense of editing and constraint, restraint rather, is there when you're creating the model itself. It's very, very important. And that, that I have to say, comes with my love of beautiful things and I suppose experience, you know, I can edit things quite well. Uh, sometimes, of course, when I was working with my team, I always used to joke about the fact we'd, we'd look at a model and we'd analyze it like someone else had done it. That was always the first rule. And then I'd say, well, that line's coming off. And, you know, the poor old designer would get upset. And I'd say, well, we'll keep it for the next car. <laughs> so it's, it's just about discipline. And the best looking cars last forever, really. Yeah, they sure do. Back in your Jaguar days, you were responsible for the whole design of the entire modern lineup. How important was it to look back at the history, and especially because Jaguar had such an incredible history? Did you, you were you taking constantly bits from those old cars and kind of bringing them into the modern cars? Yeah, you were. I was very fortunate. I understood Jaguar since probably the age of about five or six, so they were in my psyche. It's not about copying the past because Lyons never actually did that. And he was the founder of Jaguar, of course. It's about philosophy. And it was about philosophy of making sure each line was right. Each line was beautiful. The car had a presence on the road, which which made a statement. And it would last a period of time that people could still enjoy it later. And that is about the discipline. And that's it's understanding that philosophy of a Jaguar. And they were all different. If you look at 40s Jaguars and 50s Jaguars and 60s, they were very different cars. What happened was when Lyons left the company, the XJ was his last car, the XJ Coupe, actually. After that, everybody copied what he did last, and he would never have done that. So what I did was I put myself in his place and kind of decided what would he have done by now had he continued. And what you saw is what I think he would have been where he would have been at. Mm. I often looked at it and thought, yeah, I know, Sir William, she'd have probably been way ahead of me by now, but I'm trying my best, you know. Mm. So it's about understanding the philosophy of the company and what really mattered. And of course, when you got into discussion with the, the boys that like numbers, especially the package boys, they say there's not enough headroom in this because a BMW has so many centimetres and we've only got two less. You know, I said, well, that's what Jaguar is about. Beauty is everything. And if you have to sacrifice two centimetres of headroom, then so be it. And unfortunately, I didn't always win that argument, which is hugely frustrating. But I think Jaguar should aesthetically look always exciting and different. There's a great story about a scoop photographer, which we don't have them so much now. They used to be a staple of car magazines. This gentleman was snooping around somewhere in BL in the early 70s, and he pulled the cover off, and it was the you know E-type replacement, which was the XJS. And he went, nah, that's far too ugly. That's never going to be the replacement. Of course, it was. Now, the XJS, this is my question. I don't know if anybody would ever say that was the most beautiful Jaguar there was, but something weird has happened in the intervening 45 years. All cars have a moment, I think, and I absolutely adore the original Jaguar XJS now with the flying buttresses. And, and I know a few people in the music business who have those cars. They still turn up in other places. What, what is it about a car that might have struggled initially that somehow suddenly has its moment? I mean, do you agree? Maybe you think the XJS is actually rubbish. I don't know. I love it. But... <laughs> I was one of the, um, the many of them that didn't like the XJS because I was a great fan of the E-Type. And I think the problem with the XJS was it followed on from the E-Type. And that was its biggest problem. The E-Type at this point had become, you know, not at its best state. It had become a bit overgrown. So, and the philosophy was to do a two plus two and et cetera, et cetera. Now, you look at an XJS now, it's actually a very beautiful and elegant car because the rules that were applied to it were still the same. 
it just didn't fit into people's anticipation and expectations. That was the problem it had. Mm. But if you took it in isolation, if you turned it into a four-door and called it an XJ6, it had a completely different uh, reception. Yeah, they were very, very big shoes to fill, weren't they? Look at, now, look at the elegance of that, body, that, that waistline that runs from the front headlamp right through to the back. I mean, that's brave. You know, and it's very elegant. It's a beautiful car. I often joke with my colleague, Julian Thompson, who you know well, and he he loved to loathe that car. I said, Julian, just wait. You'll like it one day. And he kind of admitted to me recently, he said, yeah, it's not bad, is it? <laughs> Incidentally, that car is it's a bit of a hybrid, really, because I saw pictures of a model of it, and it started off as a mid-engine car. It started off with a V12 in the back, and that explains the buttresses at the back. And then it had a kind of cab-forward look to it, and it also had pop-up headlamps. Very Italian. And so when the Money Boys came in and, and kind of started on it, it kind of had to pick up the XJ40 platform to a certain extent, and it also had to lose things like pop-up headlamps. So it evolved rather crudely into the car it is, but it still ended up a beautiful car. There you go. I've just put the yeah. prices up. So. <laughs> Quick, go out and get one immediately. <laughs> but of course, it's the XJS that's underneath the DB7, the Aston Martin DB7. We've talked about that car a fair bit in the past, you and I, and you probably did that for buttons, really. You know, you effectively pushed the big reset button for Aston Martin in 1994 when the DB7 came out. You've set that brand on, on its current trajectory, really, you could argue. Well, that car, is, is publicly known, it started off as a Jaguar. Not the shape of it as such, but the, the underpinnings. And it remained that way. But, of course, what I did initially was to change the proportions of it. So I got the screen forward and uh, we, we cut the back off. And we changed the proportions of it to suit a modern car, not necessarily a Jaguar or, a, or an Aston. So... That was my first starting point. And then we evolved the DB7 off it once we got the green light. It's a bit of a funny story because it started off as a Jaguar and Tom said, well, yeah, it's still a Jaguar, but as far as you're concerned, it's an Aston. And I looked at Tom and thought... This is Tom Walkinshaw. Tom Walkinshaw, yes, my boss at TWR. And there was a matter of weeks lapsed while he was um, negotiating that this project we'd started on should actually be an Aston Martin, which he, he wonderfully succeeded with, with Walter Hayes. And we did that car, you know, that coupe, that... You need to know how much a car costs to develop these days. In today's money, it's anything up to half a billion pounds. Yeah, 400, 500 million. That's an all new car. So a top hat, maybe 300, that's a top body, maybe 350, 400 million pounds. We did that car for 30 million. Wow. Ford could not believe we'd done it for this money. That was just a coupe. So the early ones had very cheap rubber seals on them. I bet. So they had to be replaced. <laughs> we got it fixed. Turned out to be a good car in the end. And its underpinnings were, were rock solid. And nobody knew XJS like Tom Walkinshaw. Well, he, yes, absolutely. <laughs> TWR um, did the race car and the, the touring car, didn't it, in the 1980s? Very successful. Another nice story about XJS. Um, and I always told this to the board of directors at Jaguar. You know, you win on Sunday and you sell on Monday. And the XJS's sales were best, I believe once it started winning races towards the end of its life. So there you are, directors of car companies, take heed. Yeah, absolutely. Get winning those races. This is the perennial problem with motorsport, specifically, I would say, Formula One, but also World Endurance Championship. You know, they come in, they spend a fortune, dominate, and then clear off again, and then they clear off for three or four years, and then mysteriously they reappear again, you know? I tried so hard to get Jaguar back into sports car racing. Could never persuade the board that was the right thing to do, which I think is very sad because that was our history. And I think if we got F-Type into sports car racing, it wouldn't have won it first, but... Would have given them a good go. Oh, yeah. Huge, huge. But hey, it yeah. never happened. We did some GT4 cars for a small customer, but um, they're still expensive. Yeah, but... it's a shame. Looking for a car insurance quote? Go to chubb.com forward slash the interviews for more information.
what design out of all your cars is your favorite? Have you got a favorite? Oh, Jody, who's your favorite child? You know. I know it's a horrible one. <laughs> Come on, there's got to be one. You know, every car tells a story, and and Jason and I were talking about this, and I should really, really get it in writing at some point. You know, it really does have. Every car has a story to tell, and and people buy cars because of the story in so many ways. I think the I pace is probably going to end up my favourite because in terms of significance, and I frustrate at the lack of significance other people in the business see in the I pace. You know, it was a hugely forward-looking car, and I have to say, in this case, it really was my vision to do that car in terms of its overall shape and form and how it worked out. You know, most cars end up an end result of um, a number of people's ideas, and I, I can bring them together and, and make sure they're right. But this is something that I was very proud of, and I wanted the, I'd always wanted to do a cab-forward, mid-engine, four-seater car. Well, by the nature of it, you're not going to get a mid-engine, four-seater car, are you? Because the people kind of conflict with the engine, but... This was an opportunity to do that, and that's what we created. And even when I see one today, I just get a real tingle when I see it. They're a complete breakaway from what you would expect from Jaguar in, in, in the most conservative sense. It did shock and surprise a lot of people, especially our competitors. I take great pride in that. That's what Jaguar is about. And obviously this week we've had that confirmation from uh, Thierry Bollery, the, the new CEO of Jaguar, that the brand is indeed going to become all-electric. What's your view on that? And presumably you're, you're all on board with that, are you? Because of you know, what you started. Jason, you know the design department at Jaguar quite well. And, and you probably also know that we'd made up our mind on that 10 years ago. It wasn't a surprise. You know, people should listen to designers more. The right ones, that is, not all of them. But uh, designers have a perception of what's happening out there and what people, how people are reacting, not just in the car world, but sociologically as well. And um, we did the CX-75 10 years ago now. It was a hybrid electric race car, sports car. Unfortunately, for a number of rather unfortunate reasons, it, it, it didn't reach production, which was always a bit of a frustration to me. But technically, it's one of the most advanced cars in the world and aesthetically, probably one of the most beautiful. But um, Julian and I were there 10 years ago. You know, we just have to turn Jaguar into electric car company. And so our next opportunity was going to be the IP. So it, it, it's the right decision. It's kind of inevitable, really. Yeah, I mean, there's no big surprise there. We're going to go electric. And then Ford suddenly announced they're going to go electric. And Volkswagen have already said it. So, you know, lo and behold, the whole world will be electric by 2030. Hmm. <laughs> it's good to say it. And it's good to give you know, affirmation and, and, and confirmation, rather, to the fact that the company is moving forward into tomorrow's world with gusto. You're bang on there. It's about clarifying the company's mission statement and purpose, really. Um, and it will give everybody, Julian and, and, and all the team, absolute sense of purpose. As it happens, and I've been driving one um, this week with the sort of updated, refreshed interior. And I'm, I'm genuinely not just saying this because I'm, I'm talking to you and, and, and you, Jody. You know, I think the I-Pace is actually the best EV currently on sale in the world. And I think that's very significant because it's been around a couple of years. We've got Audi e-tron. Everybody's starting to pile in now. And this car should be feeling a little bit behind the curve, but it still feels ahead to me. It really does. So you did a great job, and not least in the design language on it, because we keep hearing constantly about electrification should liberate car designers to do something pretty crazy. The nature of you know the skateboard chassis, it frees up. Obviously, you need crumple zones and safety and all the rest of it, but no one's doing this. The EV spaceship, I'd say the I-Pace is probably the closest thing anyone's come to actually going, okay, we can do whatever the hell we want. Let's Let's do something a bit off the wall. In a good way, you know, you did it. Yeah, it is a frustration, really. I think designers such as myself should challenge the rest of the fraternities that are looking after these cars, engineering and packaging and everything. You see, there's a lot of stuff that has to go in with the electric car. 
um, transformers and other bits and pieces, and they take up space. Now, Tesla cleverly have put them, spread them around the car to give you a trunk or a boot in the front, or likewise, you could short the front. Now, crash requirements are getting tougher, so there could be an argument there to say that we can't get too short at the front. However, I think designers should challenge this to give more space to the inside of the car and the cabin size. We gained 100 millimetres by moving the driver occupants forward in I-Pace. That car's no bigger than a Porsche Macan. There's a lot of more room in it, and you can't say that often for a Jaguar, can you? Mm. Designers need to understand technology and technology packaging. That's the first you know, remit of any designer I speak to or would-be designer. And challenge us, which is what we always did at Jaguar. We challenged everything to get the shape we wanted. If they don't understand the technology, they can't challenge it. I think it's going to change so quickly as well because technology is is evolving so quickly and things will get smaller. Batteries will get better, you know, so... So it's, you know, they're going to have to be, you know, pretty hot on keeping up with tech. So production and sales of new cars it will affect. Old cars will continue while we're still on the planet. You can't stop us from driving our beautiful classics. <laughs> no, Jodie, that won't happen. Good, good. People will want that rawness, that sound, that smell, an integral part of our kind of DNA when you're a petrol head that I think that that's only going to become so much more special and so much more needed. So basically, you've got your own design and engineering consultancy called Callum, and that's where you've moved on to now. Can you tell us for all the listeners out there that might not know exactly what that is and what you can talk about? Yeah, well, we set this place up with a few of my friends and we decided, at least I decided, and they're going along with it, that we would design sort of niche products, uh, indulgences, really. We started off with the Vanquish VC25, which is a modified version of a car I did many years ago. And then we're going to carry on doing small volume stuff where I can be in charge and control of the concept of it through to production. That's very important. So, yes, it's very indulgent, but I think after 40 years in corporate business, I feel that, yeah, it's time for me and time to do something which is just about beauty and about stuff that I like and love. And it could be anything from furniture to watches to cars to boats. So that's what we're doing. And we're having a lot of fun doing it. And we're being very selective about who we work with too. Which is quite nice. Yeah, well, you can do that. <laughs> you know, you've just got such an incredible history in design that quite right. And as you said, you know, you had thought that you were going to be retiring and reading a book on a beach. And now you've created Callum and you can be picky. Okay, so I want to ask, I'm sure lots of listeners will be interested, you know, after having such a, an amazing kind of history in design and you've been hands-on with some of the most beautiful cars, what's in your collection at home? <laughs> I keep forgetting, <laughs> actually. Is it that big? <laughs> it's, I think it's about 10 or 12 cars. That's, that's all, really. I have a Porsche 993, which is my favourite 911. I have a Mini Cooper, old one. I have a, a Jaguar. It's my only Jaguar XJ Coupe, which has been... All my cars have been modernised and, and, and messed about with. Did you do this personally? Or to a certain extent. I have to call in help sometimes. But my Coupe has 18-inch wheels in it, for instance, which are right, for, as far as I'm concerned. I've got a Chevy pickup truck now, which I'm turning into a real hot rod. I do have a 32 Ford hot rod, which is just an incredible looking thing. and Most dangerous thing to drive I've ever had. TR6, which is huge fun and probably the car I drive most. I have a Porsche 914, which is being rebuilt, admittedly by Richard Tuttle at the moment, which is uh, eye-wateringly expensive, but never mind. Yeah, yeah, I bet. It'll be the best 914 in the world. What are you having done to it? I'm just having it rebuilt, really, but I've got a, a bigger engine in it and better suspension and brakes and... 
you know, it's almost a track car, but it's the time it's finished. So I'll have a bit of fun. That's a slightly rare groove Porsche, isn't it? The Volkswagen collaboration, wasn't it? Yeah, and it's got a Volkswagen Type 4 engine in it. Of course, I've got a Beetle as well, convertible. I love air-cooled engines. I've got a real passion for them. And uh, the 914 is a car that a friend of mine had as a student at college in London, and I fell in love with it. I think you have to drive one to find out. It's a real go-kart. Oh, it's brilliant fun. It's a brilliant fun, and it's just a car you take out on a Sunday morning for a, probably no more than about an hour and a half, but uh, it's just a wonderful little car, and it handles perfectly. And I love the the engine noise as well, kind of spitting and sputtling, and yeah, it's wonderful. It's a really eclectic collection. Yes, it is. And they all mean something to me. I always wanted a Mini that wasn't rusty. I actually bought this one 25 years ago. It was almost new at the time. I had an RS2000, which I've just sold, because, again, it's, it's cars you grow up with. That's what you hearken towards. I bought a Vanquish. I thought, I'd better buy a car that I designed. Yeah, exactly. It's so close to a modern car in many ways. It doesn't give me that sense of old car thrill that the other ones do. So I'm selling it. Ian, there's something um, we talked about before, and I, I, I think this is quite important significant thing you said to me once that if you can design a car you can pretty much turn your hand to anything and and i I don't think that's arrogance it's just an acknowledgement of how incredibly complicated contemporary motor car is and also that you become a problem solver as much as a creator of something beautiful thank you yes i do see myself that way Hmm. (laughs) and the question is (laughs) i love it that was just like yep Thank you very much. Well, you know, I think those who haven't been involved in the car business start to realise after a while that there are default answers, which the car industry have discovered over 100 years, that eventually they find themselves and inevitably end up with something which, whether they like it or not, is going to look like a motor car. The simple fact of the matter is that uh, you have to get people inside them. And once you sit people inside a certain space and wrap a shape around it and put wheels on it, Lo and behold, it ends up looking like a motor car. And until we have eyes in our feet, the shape of the motor car is not really going to change that much. Then we have windows at the bottom, but where does the engine go? But it's electrics, it doesn't matter. I think the, the notion of some of those product design companies, and I, I've got great uh, respect for them in indulging in this, this whole idea of doing a motor car, which is incredibly expensive and incredibly complicated. This desire to do something that's as pure as, a let's say, an iPhone or a, or a laptop to look at, you know, and it, and there's a sense of scale as well, which you have to deal with and a sense of motion. And a car is not going to just sit in your driveway as a piece of product design. It actually moves down the road. And in some ways, our human insight expects the lines of that car to reflect that movement. That's what I believe anyway. So the moment you put a line onto a car, you can't help but do it in a way which indicates movement or speed, even if it's just a very straight line. You'd be much better tailing it off at the back so it looks like it's just sort of disappearing into the distance. It's inevitable. The human mind can't help itself. And you could throw away the idea of something with just radiuses at the corner. It would become very static. And I don't think we're going to like that very much. So I'd be interested to see what Apple come up with. Okay, so before we go on to um, one piece at a time, I've probably got one last question. Really, really quick, both of you. E, I suppose, not saying one of yours, what do you think is the most beautiful car ever designed? Oh, oh my goodness. I have to bring this car into it because I find it astoundingly beautiful because it's got a slight assertion to it, and it's a 250 short wheelbase Ferrari. It's mine too. I adore that car. There's something absolutely yeah, perfect about there, it. It is. It just stops me. It, I just Weird. can't even. Yeah. And I was so lucky to take it for a test drive when I did the classic mm. car show. It almost brought me to tears. It's so beautiful. Mm. And the engine. And it, oh, I, just to drive. It's just uh, extraordinary car. I drove one through the north of Scotland. 
I drove that car on the M25 of all places. Oh, how not, glamorous. Not how glamorous. <laughs> I know. I was in a 250 GT short wheelbase. I would have driven that anywhere oh, just for that, that, that experience. So, Jace, you would say that as well? Yeah, it's certainly up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would also add the Aston Martin DB4 GT Zagato, designed Ooh. by Ercole Spada, who yes. was 22 or 23 when he did that car. Great backstory. Very similar. Especially the back. Very similar. But Hercule Spad is one of the, he, he's not, you know, he's not, I mean, I don't know if any car designers apart from present company, Mr. Callum, are household names, but um, uh, even amongst the cognoscenti, I don't think Hercule Spad is, as, he's not as well known as, you know, uh, Pininfarina or Giugiaro or Bertone, you know, that's a masterpiece. And he was, yes, he was very young when he did it. Uh, I'd also throw in the Alfa Romeo TZ2. Oh, um, that's, that's a lovely one. That's just gorgeous that car and more recently um and peter stevens is, is another you know dear friend i i i think the mclaren f1 is is a special motor car it's morphed since its arrival in 1990s it's become our generation's ferrari 250 gto um yeah in terms of its proportions uh, i love the tires the rear tires if you, if you stand and look directly into the back of that car the rear tires the section in those tires is almost cartoonish but it's a, a masterpiece packaging you know it's very small but you can fit three people in it so you know gordon gordon murray and peter stevens together and you know i think history posterity is now judging it as as the truly remarkable thing that it that it always had been a lovely car a lot of this at this point a lot of people are going to say what about the e-type well the e-type is a very beautiful car and especially in the coupe form and it was it was derived out of a discipline of geometry that's why it's so beautiful because it's it's so edited but the problem with the e-type it's so underbodied or overbodied and underwheeled, and it always frustrated me. And until you get some, you know, seven-inch Baranis on it or something, it really doesn't look right. Everything else about it is perfect. Only you could say that, E. <laughs> it is a remarkable car, the E-Type, because as you say, it is overbodied. It breaks all the rules, and yet somehow it looks sensational. Yeah, it kind of gets away with it because it's a flying saucer, really. It is so beautiful. Ian, I want to ask you, basically, part of this podcast series, we run a special theme and it's called One Piece at a Time. And it's where we ask our guest to select like one prize possession to bring to the podcast. And at the end of the series, we then put this incredible collection together. It could be a bit of a car, a photograph, an artifact. So what would be that one piece, if the house was on fire, you had to grab it apart from family, what would that one thing that has that really special memory or meaning to you? I have so many special things now over the last 20 years, but the one piece that I absolutely adore and cherish is I was given a book when I left Jaguar from my team. And it's a properly bound book. It's a beautiful book. It's a picture of me in the cover, unfortunately, (laughs) but uh, I suppose that was inevitable. It's beautifully made. That's the first thing. But each page has got a drawing from one of the designers in it and a comment, but it is something that I cherish because it just showed the love that uh, they, they demonstrated towards me and uh, hopefully the love that I demonstrate towards them. I miss them so oh, much. They, they were a brilliant team. Such a big, big part of, of your life, you know? Oh, huge. Yep. Biggest part. Yep. Yeah. Will you get a picture of it and send it to us so we can put it with our collection? Of course. You're amazing. Um, thank you, Ian. I mean, honestly, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. And and Jace, you're just such a I mean, the knowledge is brilliant, just sitting and listening. It's just so, so fascinating. But Ian, I want to just say thank you so much for, for joining us. 
No, thank you. I feel very honoured and um, great to speak to you again. And when we're all out of this lockdown, I'd love to get you down to the pub and uh, and Jace, of course, and we'll have a lovely Sunday roast and a good catch up. Let's do that. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. We're sending so much love, big over-the-air cuddles, and thank you so much. Thank you, Jodie. All right, my love. It's been great. Okay, well, take care, my love. Bye-bye. Bye. Get up to 33% discount on Chubb Multicar Insurance. Go to chubb.com forward slash the interviews for more information. Oh, he's such a legend, isn't he? He really is. I mean, it's a word that gets bandied around a lot, but I've known Ian a long time. He is a good friend. He's been very good to me over the years. But more than anything, I just love listening to him. You know, he, he when he talked about the car design, just sit and listen and learn. He's wonderful. You can just like, oh, there's so many times where I was just closing my eyes. He just takes you on this journey that you can really picture it through the way he explains things. He's a storyteller, you know. I don't know, you know, if it's a Celtic thing or, or, or what, but, you know, Ian's always been larger than life personality. Car designers tend to be the guys that car companies do put forward because they are a little bit more effusive, naturally creative rather than engineers, although there are some great engineers around, obviously, as well. But Ian's... He's one of the best. He, he really is. You know, he's a visionary. He's a great talker. He's a lovely man. Great company. And he knows what he's talking about at the end of the day. So It helps. It helps. <laughs> um, right. And I hope you guys listening really enjoyed that. And, you know, I can't wait to see his one piece at a time. Also, to everyone that's listening, if you've got a special one piece at a time, please send us pictures on Instagram or Facebook. You also can send on an email. If you want to send your picture on Facebook or Instagram, you just search for Chubb. That's C-H-U-B-B, Collector Car. And for email, it is classiccars at chubb.com or browse chubb.com forward slash the interviews. So I can't wait to see what everyone's... And will you, Jace, will you send a picture of, of your one little piece? Absolutely. What do you think it will be? Oh, Lord. Um, I have the first issue of the official Ferrari magazine, which was a project I was involved with for a long time. Yes. When Michael Schumacher was the Stig on Top Gear, that episode, I, I was there to interview Michael before Jeremy did the main interview. In fact, I have issue one, and then I've got an issue signed by Fernando Alonso, and then I've got an issue signed by Sebastian Vettel. But I think for obvious and rather, and rather sad reasons, the one that's signed by Michael Schumacher, yeah, that's cool. Very, very, very special. All right, well, take a picture of it and send it to us. Um, Jace, thank you so much. Um, sending you loads of love and we'll speak really soon. You too, Jody. Take care. All the best. So thank you so much for joining me today for the latest episode of the Chubb interview series brought to you by Chubb, who share our passion for classic cars. There'll be another episode very soon. To receive every episode as it's released, please subscribe on your favourite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please review and spread the word. And don't forget to email us your stories about your most loved classics. I'm Jodie Kidd. Until next time. Bye. The Chubb Interviews with Jody Kidd. Brought to you by Chubb Insurance. Expert insurers of your most valued possessions. Established since 1882.